Hello, friends. Good to have you here listening to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pinizzato, joined as always by the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Today's guest is going to be Trevor Hubs. He's the Armed Forces Initiative Coordinator with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. He heads up the Armed Forces Initiative, and it's a great program. We're excited to tell you about uh, getting our veterans into the outdoors. We're also going to talk a lot of deer hunting as well. Uh, The remaining states that hadn't started their seasons yet will be underway by the time you hear this. We'll be into October. Uh, So you'll be hearing this on October 5th. So that pretty much brings everybody else that hadn't been deer hunting yet into the mix. So obviously exciting times. Maybe you're listening to us on your way into the deer woods, which would be pretty cool as well. It's also an Ask NDA Anything episode. So we got a couple of those to go through. And of course, we have the B-Team report, which is going to come after the interview. So we always look forward to telling you how stupid we've been since you've heard us the last time. (laughs) So you may have heard the doctor chuckle there. The doctor is in and he's fired up to do some hunting. I know that. So where's your mind right now, Mike? As usual, right before the season starts, it's checking off all the boxes, honey-do list, work stuff, get that out of the way so that when I do go out, I can enjoy myself. Yeah, that's very wise advice because there's nothing worse than trying to be out there hunting and you're thinking about something that you should have done or maybe you've upset somebody because you're out hunting for the 12th day in a row or, you know, <laughs> there there are people that can relate to this right now. And so, especially younger folks, Mike, I was thinking about this the other day. As, you're, as you get older as a hunter, your goals change and your experience, what you want to experience when you're out there changes. And I remember the days where you just slugged it out day after day, morning, night, you know, you were killing yourself to chase down a deer. And those are tough times because you conflict with family things, your priorities get mixed up. But as you get older, you kind of hit this sweet spot where I think you and I are. And that is, it's not about how many times, it's about the experience of the times that you go out there. So that's that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, you're right. I think it's a different mindset. It's um, when we were younger, it was more quantity over quality. You were just out there figuring that if you were out, it would magically happen. Whereas now I think we select better times to give us a better option to have it happen. But there was a funny story. A patient told me once when I was back in my twenties, kind of griping about the same thing. And he was in his fifties. And my story was my wife was always you know, her question was, when are you coming back? When are you going to be back? And I'd tell her, you know, after dark, when, you know, after dark, she says, well, when is that? I'm like, it's when it's after dark. (laughs) So my patient told me, he says, oh, when you get into your fifties, she'll be asking you or turning towards you and saying, don't, isn't there someplace that you need to be other than here? (laughs) You know what I mean? And I think I'm finally at that, that place where my wife says, um, you going hunting? Yeah. She goes, okay, good. <laughs> you know, and I think it's the, this I mean, we've come full circle here, which is actually awesome. Yes, absolutely. We've certainly had a journey. I mean, it's, I was helping get some hunters for a, I wouldn't call it urban, but a, to be able to hunt a municipal property the other day. And I was introducing myself and I was able to tell them that I've been bow hunting for almost 35 years. <laughs> And so I haven't caught myself off guard with that one. And they're like, man, that guy's old. Anyway, (laughs) before we get into depression here, we don't want to do that. Our show sponsor today is our friends at Vortex Optics. 
No, I had mentioned, if you if you recall a recent B-team report where I talked about losing my rangefinder and then having to buy a new one, well, of course, I picked up a Vortex. And actually, I didn't even get the fancy one that, that goes out for thousands of yards. I got one of the lower end ones, and man, it's awesome. Lightweight, does a great job, uh, inexpensive, so just a very quality product and still backed by their excellent guarantee, uh, warranty, I guess would be the right word there. I also, Mike, ordered, I don't know if I told you this, but saddle hunting, one of the challenges I've had with saddle hunting is that my binoculars want to get in the way of my bridge sometimes, and it can be awkward and uncomfortable. So I thought this year I'm going smaller with binoculars. And so I picked up a pair of the Diamondback HD, they're 8x32s. Because really in the environments that, that I hunt in, and frankly that you hunt in, that's all you need. You don't need anything more than that. And they, they had really great reviews and I picked up a pair and I love them. They just take up way less space. They're lightweight and they're going to do the job. And I also want to point out uh, their clothing. I've said this before on the show when they've been the sponsor, their clothing, clothing's incredible. I just got a few items for the sort of the fall winter from them and it's just fantastic quality. And so it's funny, I think when people see me, see me, they always see me wearing this Vortex stuff. They probably think that I'm, you know, personally sponsored by them in some way. And that's not <laughs> the case. Although they are a, uh, a supporter and a great supporter of the National Deer Association. So thanks to our friends at Vortex for great products, whether it be optics, clothing, whatever, good people, uh, buy it, buy their stuff. Yeah, I have the Diamondbacks. I like them a lot. Yeah, I mean they're they're super high quality. I, I've pulled up some of the most expensive binos to my eyes just to see what they look like because I've never spent that kind of money. And uh, you know, I, I mean, I suppose there's a difference, but it's it's not to a, a difference to where I, that I can really see or notice too much. So, hey, we have a promotion going on our Deer Steward One course. We are in the process of wrapping up the renewal of that course, and when I mean renewal, I mean that we have redone the course. It was getting uh, you know, the information is still great, but we needed to renew it, get it uh, fresher looking. We brought in some additional folks to help us teach the course. So what we're doing in the meantime, that's not going to launch until February. We are offering the current Deer Steward One course for 20% off, which is a great deal. And so you still get Deer Steward One certification, even though we're coming out with a new program, but you're going to get it for quite a bit less money. That brand new course, as I said, will be launched in February. So you also have the option to say, you know what? I don't mind paying the extra 20%. I'm going to wait till the new course comes out, but you still get the same certification if you take the old course and you get a discount at 20% off. So uh, just be looking for that. Take advantage of it if it's something you've been wanting to do. We're also still running the podcast promo to get membership for 30 bucks instead of 35. So if you use the promo code podcast, you get not only your membership for five bucks off to the NDA, we also send you a hat. So there you have it. Pretty good deal, I think. All right, Mike, this is an Ask NDA Anything episode. I always enjoy these. And so I've picked out a couple to bring on to the show. And here's what we got. I'm going to start off, Mike, we have gone international with the Ask NDA Anything. We've gone to, I've got visit here from our friends from Canada. This is Jarrett from Alberta. Appreciate it, Jarrett. Jarrett says, I have been a subscriber of the newsletter for years. And I recently, and recently now listening to Coffee and Deer and Deer Season 365. So thank you so much, Jarrett. We appreciate it. He says, my question is, I'm a new hunter hoping to fill my first tag this season. What are some of the signs of an unhealthy deer that I shouldn't bring home and fill the freezer? 
Well, this is a good one, Mike, and I think it's a timely question given we are into uh, hunting season. And so it's, unfortunately, many of these things aren't a straight answer, but I'll say this. Uh, obviously, if you see a deer acting strangely, like number one, like it's not afraid of you, it's staggering through the woods, acting bizarre, obviously that's something to be concerned about. Um, luckily, I can tell you, Mike, in all of my years of hunting, which they have been many, as we've already talked about, I have, I can count on one hand or less how many times I saw a deer that was acting strange or sick or didn't look right in the woods. Very, very seldom. Now, I have seen deer that have been wounded, and that's not really what we're talking about here so much, but we're talking about deer that just aren't healthy. I haven't seen that very often. So that's number one. But if you do encounter it, um, you know, that, that could be a sick deer. You want to report that to your, to your wildlife management agency. So in your case, the provincial agency that deals with that in the United States, it'd be your state wildlife agency. Uh, if you shoot a deer, however, and you get up to it and you notice issues with it, there's something that just doesn't look right. You, you want to be, you want to exercise caution and probably not eat that deer. You may want to take it to a processor and have them look at it for you. Uh, this is very timely, by the way, because in our recent newsletter that just came out, Lindsey Thomas had a great article in there about something he encountered uh, whenever he was butchering a deer that he shot last year. And it actually was the results of an old abscess that had kind of healed and there was some fluid in there um, that made him concerned and he looked into it. So I would say always check with a professional. And if you're ever unsure, you're probably best to not consume that animal. Anything to add to that, Mike? I do have a couple things. Um, first and foremost, it kind of goes back to what you were saying is that if you identify that the deer doesn't look healthy and doesn't behave like other natural deer. Now you said that you're a new hunter and basically the two things that I would look for that are very outwardly obvious that an animal is sick is it's just like every, everyone else. Like you hear, like, you know, when you're upset or you're sad, you don't feel your head hangs low. If a deer is continually holding its head in a down hanging position. Um, historically that deer is ill, just like with dogs or any other animal, uh, not feeding. I'm just saying like, if it's just stops, stands in the woods and just lets its head hang down and it's not in an alert position, most likely that deer is not feeling well. The other thing that I've seen that is really obvious is if you look back by the stomach where the stomach meets the back hips or the pelvis, if that, if you can actually see the bones, almost like a, like a milk cow, uh, where you can see the bones of their pelvis or their rib cage. I know up in Canada, they actually are very heavily furred, but if you can actually see the ribs or the pelvis on an animal, that deer is experiencing some type of nutritional issues. And my suggestion would be um, to kind of support what Nick's saying is I wouldn't even shoot the deer to then have to worry about dealing with it. You know, let nature take its course. The worst thing to do in my opinion is to shoot one because you don't think it's acting correctly and then just leave it there. Um, I would say just let nature take its course, but if you do shoot one and you, you didn't really appreciate any of the changes as uh, Nick said, take it to a processor or your local wildlife agency and let them confirm that yes, this deer is not well, you should not consume it or your family should not consume it and, um, support it that way. So that's kind of my additional thoughts on that. 
Yeah, and I hopefully uh, you don't encounter that when you're out there. I will say I should have added this on trail cameras. You run trail cameras long enough, you see all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> um, and I remember I have seen deer on trail camera that just looked sick that I knew, well, that deer's not going to last for whatever reason. One to a, one in Ohio really comes to mind. There was this young buck that just kept getting scrawnier and scrawnier. And I thought, and this deer is ill. He's certainly not going to make it. And then I did find that deer, you know, walking around, I think, looking for antler sheds. He didn't make it. So who knows why? It happens out there. They are living beings and they get sick just like we do. And unfortunately, they can't just go to the doctor and get fixed up. So, yeah, Mother uh, Nature takes care of that. And I think if that's the case, let let Mother Nature do her job because she does it very well. Absolutely. All right. This is an interesting one, Mike. It's not as much of an Ask NDA. Well, I guess it is. But it's already been answered, and so we don't have to answer it. We may have some commentary, and we got one. We get questions. I should say this. We get questions into the NDA general mailbox, uh, info at deerassociation.com, by the way. All kinds of questions about deer, which is cool, and then those get filtered out to our biologists who typically have good answers for those, uh, which means I never get them, by the way. I don't get them until after they've been answered and I see what we answered. So anyway... <laughs> Uh, this was one of those, and it's an interesting one, and it's nothing I've ever heard of before. So I'm going to read the read the question that was submitted, and I'm going to give you Matt Ross's answer to this. Matt, one of our uh, biologists, of course, here at the NDA. Uh, it's and this is from Shelley from California. She's in Northern California. She says we live in a town in Northern California, and the deer here are all over the place. We're a hunting family. Today, my grandson and I were driving down the road, saw a doe with a fawn who couldn't have been more than a day old. Grandson grabbed my phone to catch a photo of the, of the cuteness as they were both entering a residential yard. When the fawn reached the doe, she immediately stomped it to death. Needless to say, both my grandson and I were traumatized. What would make her, to make her do that? It's very late in the season for a fawn to be born, but gosh, that was terrible. Yeah, that is terrible. I've never heard of that, and I'm sorry that you and your grandson had to see that. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, here's what Matt Ross answered. Uh, thank you for your interest in the NDA and your question about the doe that killed the fawn. Uh, first, that must have been uh, an equally shocking and traumatic experience. Sorry that you had to witness it. Uh, although the fact that ecologically speaking, deer are excellent mothers, due to the fact that they are part of a group of K-selected species. All right. See, this is why we have Matt answer the question, because I'm already lost, right? So folks, Google K-selected species and you'll learn about this. I'm teasing just a little bit, but good stuff. Uh, he does clarify, says, those that have offspring and invest heavily in those young. All right. So in the law of averages, say it would be highly unlikely that the doe you and your grandson observed was killing its own offspring. Truth be known, some pretty odd behaviors have been recorded between does and their fawns that involve instinctual yet illogical motivations. Third, it's certainly possible it was an unrelated fawn, but even, when it would, uh, even then it would be odd for a doe to kill the offspring of another doe. I say that because the only time that deer are truly territorial is in those few first weeks after they have given birth. Maybe she had a newborn as well, and that was her birthing territory, and an unfamiliar doe uh, dropped a fawn in the same vicinity. Hard to say. And finally, perhaps there's a chance that it was her fawn, and it was in danger, and the doe was trying to stomp whatever the in invisible threat was, and she mistakenly killed the fawn. Earlier this summer, a fawn was photographed being attacked by a snake, and we posted it on social media page. It got a lot of attention. I could see that being a plausible explanation. 
in the end, it's hard to qualify what you saw without some follow-up evidence, but it doesn't make sense, and it's certainly a very rare occurrence, not the norm. So, yeah, very interesting. I mean, I've certainly seen, to Matt's point, and I'm sure you've seen this too, Mike, I've seen where you've got doe groups coming in from one direction, and then maybe another doe group comes in from another, and a fawn will run up and approach an adult doe in another doe group, and that that doe does not want anything to do with that fawn, and she'll you know, sort of raise her hind legs or kick it away. I've seen this also with orphan fawns that are trying to locate their mother and they're running around to every adult doe that's around and they get that kind of very cold shouldered response. So they're not big on adoption, are they? Um, that I can't really speak to um, very much. The only thing I can say is thank God that Matt answered that question because I think he did a bang up job and I actually learned something myself. So good on you, Matt. Thank you for that. Cause I'm, I love learning. But I guess the only thing that I would say before that to actually um, go back to the listener's question is that what was the doe behavior right before it happened? Because usually, as you said, when um, unfamiliar different family groups approach each other, there's always body language. Like a, a doe will lay her ears back, um, very similar to like a dog would when it's aggressive. And like you said, she might actually kick at it with her front feet to um, just kind of ward it off. But if the doe was standing there perfectly calm and an alert um, posture, and then all of a sudden uh, physically attacked, I mean, again, there, I, I have more questions than answers. I mean, Matt did a great job answering that, but uh, I really can't add too much to this other than um, what you're, you and Matt are saying. I would just say that, um, I, again, I, th I think that it's just a, a horrific thing for her and her grandchild to experience, but uh, I'd need, I'd need more information. I'd need, you know, I'd need to see what the doe did before, what it did after. Like Matt said, was there some other unforeseen um, threat on or near that fawn? It's tough to say. Yeah. Interesting indeed. Thank you, Matt, for the detailed response. Matt is super detailed, by the way. We pick on him about it. But the reality is I often ask Matt if he can keep minutes in our board meetings because <laughs> he uh, he's the best at catching every little detail. You can always take stuff away, but you can't add stuff in later. As always, we appreciate the Ask NDA Anything questions. Don't sleep on that, by the way. Send them in now. Don't wait until next week when we say, hey, next next episode's an Ask NDA Anything. Send them in now, please. We appreciate them, and I think people learn from them. And so we have to do a giveaway here. Jared, as much as I'd love to send you something up to Alberta, one of the most beautiful places in the world, by the way, um, I'm going to send it to Shelly, and I'm also going to add an extra cap in there for her grandson. I mean, that was a tough experience that they endured there. And so we'll get contact information for Shelly and, and send that along. So, Jarrett, don't be a stranger there. Jump back in. I know you'll have more questions as a new hunter, and eventually we'll get you on the winner's list. All right. Stay tuned for the B-Team report. We got some good stuff to talk about. We're also going to talk a little more deer hunting after the interview. But this is a good one. Uh, looking forward to this. I uh, hope you folks enjoy it. Let's go ahead and bring our in our guest, Trevor Hubbs from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Trevor, thanks for being on the Coffee and Deer podcast. Pleasure to have you on. Trevor is the 
He's with the Armed Forces. He's the Armed Forces Initiative Coordinator, excuse me, with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. He grew up in southern Missouri hunting raccoons and coyotes with hounds. He's a waterfowl hunter, upland bird hunter with his setters, which that's always a problem when the doctor's on because he's a big, you know, anytime someone comes on, Trevor, that likes to hunt with dogs, you're going to hear it. We take a side road talking about hunting with uh, birds with dogs, which is fine. But I like to pick on the doctor about that. And also, uh, Trevor is an Army veteran, so thank you for your service. We appreciate that, and thank you for the service that you're providing in this program and giving back. So, Trevor, that's that's my intro. But why don't you fill in the gaps and tell us about you? No, yeah, um, that was that was great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Um, yeah, I grew up running, uh, chasing just about anything that you could chase down there in Missouri, Southern Illinois. Just running that Mississippi River. Did a lot of duck hunting, a lot of quail hunting, a lot of a lot of chasing raccoons with a pack of hounds, but, um, yeah, just got into, uh, kind of Western hunting. I mean, you, it's Missouri, everybody's deer hunting. So deer hunted quite a bit. Um, joined the army after high school, uh, was in the army for, uh, about eight years. Uh, last two years, I was an ROTC instructor at Eastern Illinois university. So that was a really good time. That's how I got my bachelor's degree. Uh, started as a business consultant right after I graduated, did that for about six years, uh, mostly very small businesses like uh, in the five to $15 million range and started uh, working with the Armed Force Initiative at BHA as a volunteer in 2019 and uh, just got brought on to staff to kind of run the program full time last year. So it's been fun. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. You've done a lot of things, a lot of great things. So you've had a neat career path. And so you uh, just mentioned the Armed Forces Initiative, and it's interesting, you actually started as a volunteer, but man, must have been going so well that they said, we need to get this guy on full time and and make this a program. So why don't you tell us about how that happened and then just get right into it. What is the Armed Forces Initiative? Yeah, so the Armed Forces Initiative is just one of the programs that backcountry hunters and anglers offer. And our, you know, our purpose is to serve the military community. So that's veterans, active duty, reserves, National Guard, and Gold Star families. How it kind of started was uh, if you're a BHA member, you probably recently got your annual survey. So BHA sends out you know, whatever it is, 25, 30 question survey every year to try and understand what are the priorities of our members, who are our members, uh, are there any trends that we haven't recognized yet? So in 2018, uh, fall of 2018, we recognized uh, at that point, I think it was 14% of BHA is either active duty military or a veteran. And that's unique because if you look at the general population, depending on the study you use, it's between uh, five and 6% of the general population are veterans. So why is BHA more than double that? What are we doing to kind of capture uh, the interest of this community? So starting late 2018, 2019, started doing a bunch of research, uh, doing a lot of you know interviews. And that's where I kind of got involved with the program. Like why, uh, why are you interested in BHA? And there's a whole litany of reasons. Uh, I mean, the biggest one is you just don't make that much money in the army and you can't afford your 80 acres of whitetail paradise in Southern Missouri uh, most of the time. But uh, bigger than that, it was, you're kind of forced to use public land. Cause like, let's say private hubs get sent from Southern Missouri to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Well, now there's hogs. Now there's, you know, a large black bear population you can hunt. The coast is only three hours away. You can do some saltwater fishing, a lot of experiences that you may not have grown up with, but We've been at war for 20 years, all right? So you have a year of training, a year of deployment, and a year of rest, and then you change duty stations. So you're just, the work schedule has just been pretty constant. So like I never hunted and fished the whole time I was in the army. And then like 
you change dew stations. Now you get sent to Colorado or you get sent to Alaska. Now there's elk, there's moose, there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can hunt, but you don't really know where to go. You're in a new state. You don't know the regulations. You can't keep a gun in your barracks because that's not allowed for the per army regulations. So if you wanted to ask your boss how to hunt, you could, but he gets paid to scream at you every day. So you're probably not going to ask. And even if you brought, got up the courage to ask, he got there three months before you did. And he doesn't know either. Right. <laughs> so there's just, you kind of have to use that public land piece. I got to ask you this just on a personal level for you. What was that like growing up being a hunter? And then all of a sudden, man, it was taken away from you for a long time. How did you handle that? Uh, to be honest, I didn't really notice. And that's probably the scariest part of, uh, of this job is a lot of people like don't really notice that they haven't hunted for eight, 15, 20 years. Um, like we get, I would say probably 10 to 15% of, uh, people that come to the armed force initiative are brand new to hunting or brand new to angling, like never considered it, but now they've, they've watched meat eater. They've seen their friends do it. They want to get more involved and try this out. And, uh, the other, you know, give or take 75 to 85% is all that reactivation piece of, uh, of like that R3, like guys that used to hunt growing up, they used to fish growing up and they joined the army and they didn't like me. It's, uh especially you see it in a lot of the infantry guys, uh, airborne special operations community dudes that got paid to go live in the woods and shoot guns. As, as weird as it sounds, it becomes work. Like when I got out, my, uh, my dad, and my brother were trying to take me deer hunting that November, uh, for gun season. And I was like, no, that sounds miserable. I don't want to go at all. Like, and they basically had to try to drag me out of the house. Like, no idiot, you're going like get in the stand and sit there. I don't care what you, if you shoot anything. And so and, when you, uh, I was going to ask you when you did that though, then did it come back to you pretty quickly? Like, you know what, man, this is pretty cool. I miss this. Took about three days. Yeah. And then you just kind of wake up and, uh, it's like, wow, this is actually a great time. Like, but it, it's strange to, uh, strange to say, but I see this experience over and over again, uh, just in my job. And, and as a volunteer, like you guys just feel better, but it takes about three days to remember like, Hey, this doesn't have to be work. You know, the deer aren't shooting back at you. There's not, uh, there's not some dude screaming at you. If you do something wrong, like it can be fun to be out in the woods. It can be fun to kind of be part of this natural process. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of how it goes, especially for the combat arms kind of folks. My brother was deployed to Iraq. And so he was obviously, we grew up hunting and fishing and he was, uh, obviously active in a way and, I remember at one point they found that one of the lakes or whatever that they found had these strange kind of what we would, they look like carp for here. And he was all excited because they found something that they could do. You know, they, I guess there was one opportunity where they could go, they could go hunt a camel or something, which is <laughs> nice. Yeah. Which was kind of crazy. He didn't go on that, but he, he did send pictures from the fishing. And then I also remember, I don't know if you, if you'll recall this, but he, he would ask me to send over hunting magazines and so on, because the guys sitting around, he was with a lot of guys that were into the outdoors and they enjoyed at least looking at that stuff while they were there. And we even occasionally would get messages to our organization from folks who were deployed. So do you recall having those kind of conversations? Oh, absolutely. It's, um, that's one of the, the big tenets of being in the, in the army infantry is uh, boredom. Like you've mm -hmm. got to talk about something like you have so many, uh, you know, just guard duties where it's you and one other guy and you're just sitting there for 12 hours a day. Like you've talked about just anything and everything, but, uh, yeah, that's something BHA does as well. We just sent, uh, 
I guess it was like 200 uh, care kits or whatever you want to call them, like a couple snacks, uh, BHA magazines, bunch of stickers, just thank you letters, stuff like that overseas. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely helps. It's just uh, I think it's more of an access piece than anything else on active duty. Like a lot of people don't realize uh, there's 66 million acres of public land that's owned by mm-hmm. the Department of Defense. Like you could hunt it. Sometimes it's a pain because you have to work around the military's training schedules. But a lot of it's some of the best hunting out there, like the best uh, quail habitat in North Carolina. I mean, people are going to call and argue about this with me, but I think it's on Fort Bragg. Mm. Like you have maintained drop zones for paratrooper training jumps that have to be kept open. There are these very natural meadows with natural prairie grass surrounded by this longleaf pine. Like this is perfect habitat. In fact, there's a, what is it? I'm trying to think? Uh, it's like 50 and maybe it's 40, 49. It's like 49 or 50 endangered species that only live on Department of Defense owned properties. Like that's the only habitat left for them in the world. So there's a lot of, uh, of opportunity on base. People just don't know about it. It's interesting you bring that up. One of our board members uh, works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they do work on uh, you know, this, some of this military-owned land. And we've talked about potentially partnering on uh, habitat projects and even, even hunting opportunities. So it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, this, is, this stood out to me as I was learning more about your program. On your website, it says that you believe veterans need three things most. And those three things are time outdoors, a community, and a mission. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, if we if we want to be honest, you could probably accomplish these things a hundred different ways. They call it. You could have an outdoor yoga group if you really wanted one. The uh, but I don't know anything about yoga, so what I do know <laughs> is hunting and fishing. So I I can do this piece right. But uh, yeah, we try and do these three things with every event we have. The first one, like, is the time outdoors. We call that like just short term medicine, right? Like pull you away from your phone, away from the email, away from just kind of everyday life, put you in, you know, a beautiful place, whether that's, you know, the hardwoods of Maine, whether that's Fort Benning, Georgia, whether it's, you know, Eastern Montana, wherever we happen to be that day, like just pull them out, teach them like, Hey, this is why hunting and fishing is important. And then these are the skills you have to go hunt and fish. It's not necessarily about uh, like our program doesn't really do the once in a lifetime, like, you know, 300 inch elk or giant bull moose in Alaska. Like it's not about taking one veteran or a couple veterans out on these amazing once in a lifetime trips, as much as it's about teaching them all the skills necessary that they'll need to go repeat the experience that's available local to them, whether that's whitetails, bass, I mean, it could be elk, could be pronghorn depending on the part of the country, but it's instead of a lifetime, once in a lifetime experience, we try to create a lifetime of experiences. So the second part of that is like, is a peer group. You know, it's a tribe, whatever you want to call it. And that's a group of men and women with a similar life experience that also enjoy hunting and fishing. So like when you come home from one of our events, no matter, I mean, we're at uh, last numbers I pulled with 9,800 members for the, just the AFI. We're on 48 active duty installations. Like no matter where you're going back to after an event, I can tie you into a community of hunters and anglers that have the same life experience as you do. And that kind of really helps you continue to get out there. So it's not just you. It's not, hey, I learned a bunch of cool stuff about fishing for smallmouth bass at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. But now what? No, like you have a whole group. We're going out next weekend or going out in two weeks or next season or whatever it is. Like it keeps them going. And the last part there is a mission. And and that's important because this generation of veterans, uh, like I was in sixth grade for 9-11. 
like we've lived 20 years of our life at war. That's unique to uh, the kind of the veteran experience. Like we haven't had that before. That was the long, longest running war in U.S. history. Right. So like every day when you wake up after you, you join the Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, whatever, like you have a mission. You know that what you're doing that day, even if it's just sweeping the floor, like that's somehow helping your country. That's making the world better. Right. Like and then all of a sudden you get out and you don't have that. Now you're not Trevor, the paratrooper. You're not, you know, Dave, the army engineer. You're not Steve, the recon Marine. You're just Trevor. And you have to find a way to deal with that. And that's what I've noticed that is that's the biggest, uh, one of the biggest kind of flaws we have with this veteran reintegration system in the civilian world is now you don't have a mission for the first time. You don't know what you're doing with your life. And I mean, especially in the veteran community, it's an all volunteer force. These people signed up to serve. They watched nine 11 or they saw something. They said, Hey, this, I'm going to make this my problem. I'm going to go fix this. Like, so you pull them out and now they're a construction worker or a business consultant or a tax attorney or whatever they choose to do. And there's just not that much purpose there. And, uh, inside they struggle the neat thing about hunting and fishing that's what kind of makes us a little different than like hot yoga is we have a built-in mission and that mission is conservation like ideally i go out and i show you just an amazing time fishing smallmouth or chasing whitetail deer whatever you're doing i show you a group of peers that can continue to help you do that in the future and through that experience you become so passionate about you know whatever it is could be could be ducks, could be geese, could be deer, could be elk. I don't necessarily care about the species or habitat that ignites that passion as long as that passion is ignited, right? And that leads to a mission of conservation. Well, how do I keep more smallmouth in this lake? Or how do I make sure I have the most whitetails on this piece of public land? Or, you know, that could just be, how do I show more people this great experience? So whether they're, you know, they're taking their buddies out hunting or their kids out hunting, whether they're working with their local fish and wildlife agency or whether they decide to come volunteer with BHA or another nonprofit, that's doesn't really matter to me as long as the veterans are getting involved in that conservation kind of conversation. Does that make sense? Sorry, I kind of rambled there. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. So my question is, you've talked about the process and you've talked about the vision or the mission. How is these individuals reached? I mean, you talked about the recruitment part of that. How um, have you had struggles reaching individuals? Are they referred? Are they just part of your organization and you send out uh, communications that way? So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd say probably 70% of, of our outreach happens over social media. That's where people find us. That's kind of the world we live in. So that's either Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we're always posting pictures, videos, YouTubes, or uh, just video longer videos on YouTube of what we're doing. The veterans were out there helping, and uh, it's it's kind of grown organically. I don't. I wish I could tell you, oh, this is what we're doing right, and this is our outreach strategy. Uh, but I'm a little new to this, um, and I'm not quite sure what we're doing right, which is a dangerous statement, right? But uh, so we started in 2020 with 18 veterans in Eastern Montana, and uh, I mean this year we're going to break the thousand veteran mark for number of veterans were taken out. We're going to be at over a hundred events. So the biggest thing is that I think we're doing right is just igniting that kind of grassroots volunteerism, which is what BHA is all about. Like it's nothing without the volunteers, but like we have a leader in North Carolina, Marty Bartram, and he is just killing it. He was a army infantry guy. He got out. Now he works for the department of defense, uh, doing something super secret and cool, but uh, loves to hunt and fish. Like he didn't get into it until he was out of the army. Like he's a, whatever you want to call that, a late in life 
hunter but he's like no this this works this makes sense makes sense for ptsd makes sense for just getting back into the civilian world it just makes sense for people so like he puts on five or six events a year that he's taken out over 500 veterans since thing this has started and we have a version of marty in almost every, in 48 states now like we're missing delaware and hawaii so if you're in delaware hawaii please call me but uh but yeah so i think um igniting the passions of those volunteers and providing them a platform to try and replicate this experience. Like you pull somebody from Indiana over to like, so we, we took 18 veterans to the boundary waters a couple of three weeks ago. And out of that experience, like without the intent of recruiting people, like that was just, let's go fish. Let's explain why like this wilderness area is important. Right. We got a new volunteer guy at the end of it. It's like, Hey, do you have anybody in Michigan? Well, no, I, I don't have anybody in Michigan. I live in Michigan. Can I be your person? What does that process look like? I'd have a couple events I'd love to do. Same thing with another guy in Ohio. Like, hey, I'd love to love to help with this. Like, it's something that happens in between day three and day five where it just clicks. Like, guys, like this makes sense. Like, I want to do this. It's interesting. So, uh, go ahead, Mike. One more question since we're on that on that path. So what's the formula? I mean, is there a specific rigid formula or is it a loose formula that you use that it, you found to be very successful? Uh, I, I'd say I stick to a loose formula. So something we have in the army is, uh, is commander's intent. So that's basically, it's like two sentences within this entire like operations order for, for any kind of mission that you have, you have an operations order. And there's always like two sentences in there as the commander's intent. And what that really means is like, hey, when the entire plan goes to hell, when you take a ton of casualties or whatever happens, you get separated. Like this is what needs to get done at the end of the day. Like the whole rest of the operations order is how I think you should do it and all this detailed planning. But at the end of the day, those two sentences are what needs to get done. So I'm a big fan of that. So instead of really like focusing on a vision or like the mission statement, I have the commander's intent and what uh, what we have for that is to instill within the military community, a knowledge of conservation practices and theory, a love of wild places and a desire to elevate America's public wild lands as fundamental components of American freedom. So as long as what you're doing can somehow be tied into that, you're not wrong. You're not going to get yelled at. You're not going to. So that, that takes a ton of different forms, right? So like in Alaska, we have three active duty bases in Alaska. A guy up there running the whole show is David May, and he worked out a deal with, uh, I'm going to mess it up. It's not Alaska Fish and Game, but it's not Parks either. It's whatever their game agency is in Alaska, donates a roadkill moose, a roadkill caribou every month. And for all new soldiers that get stationed there, like every month, BHA Armed Forces Initiative is putting on a big game breakdown class. Like, hey, you're from the Midwest, you're from the Southeast, whatever, like, this is what a moose looks like. This is how you break it down and how you, you parcel out this meat. Like as that's a big obstacle, like, cause you can get a moose tag over the counter in a lot of parts of Alaska, especially if you're stationed there and you have a reasonable chance of success, but now what you have a 2,200 pound animal on the ground. So that's what Alaska has kind of deemed like the biggest obstacle to getting folks out in their area. Now that's different. You go down to, to Texas and the biggest thing is as access or working with landowners because you have a lot of publicly available land that just happens to be privately owned. So in Texas, they do a lot of like zoom meetings, zoom events, like, Hey, here's how you talk to a landowner. Here's a form letter that I use to try and gain access to hunt quail or, uh, or deer or turkeys or whatever it is, hogs, hogs. And that's their biggest thing. Wyoming just did a, uh, 
a meeting earlier this week on Western point system. Like, Hey, you're new to, you're new to the West. Now you have points. Not everything is over the counter. Like you don't just get nine whitetail tags here. There's a process and it's complicated. Like we had uh, a woman at that class, uh, who had just gotten stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado. And at the beginning, she's like, I don't know this. Is, I've looked into it. It just seems super complicated. I think I'm just going to go take leave and go back home to Pennsylvania and try and hunt with my dad. And that's the, that's what a lot of people do instead. Cause it just, it's not a super friendly system to figure out. And uh, at the end of it, I hope she got enough information. Like it sounded like she was going to go ahead and try for over the counter elk rifle season in Colorado this year, but that's what Wyoming wants. That's different. Massachusetts this January is doing a black duck hunt in the saltwater marsh, which is crazy because most parts of the Northern world in January, it's all froze up. Like waterfowl season is over because it's a saltwater brackish water marsh. It stays open longer. So I, I'm rambling again and just telling stories, but uh, basically how it works is there is, I don't have a loose formula. If you have something that you think works in your area, I'm not everywhere. I trust you. Like, tell me what that is. I could be four dudes, bluegill fishing, or it could be 40 dudes on a pheasant hunt. Tell me what works. So there's so many parallels with what you're doing to our field to fork program. Uh, as a matter of fact, this morning I had uh, a landowner ask me for, you know, how do your field to fork events go? And they're not always necessarily exactly the same for the reasons that you said. I mean, really the, the biggest difference between our programs, I think, is that you're, you're exclusively working with veterans, which is awesome, where we're just generally adult uh, new adult hunters. And so that really leads me to my next question. And that is, do you encounter anyone in the program that has never hunted or fished before that, that has found this program and wants to try it for the first time? Or is it mostly people who have done it before and just want to get reactivated? Yep. It's mostly people who have done it before and whose friends or family is kind of pushing them into this and like, Hey, you should really try this. Like, but uh, that said, I mean, uh, one of the first uh, kind of members of volunteers who stood up like we were volunteers together and he kind of recommended me to bha for for this job is a guy ryan burkhart and he's a army pilot like 20 years in like retired lieutenant colonel like a very qualified dude and he's just like when he got out he did some rock climbing he did some ice climbing and he's like i love being outdoors but what what else can i do what gets me more involved and the way he talks about it is part of that process of like giving back to the land and taking something from the land and you know, we, I've been there when he's harvested, uh, his first Turkey and we've, he's gotten deer now and he spent it's like 75 days of field last year. Like guys just, just ate up with it. So, uh, and, and there's several examples. I was like, yeah, 15 to 20% are that brand new, like never hunted, never thought about it, but let's try it. Whereas the rest of them, that 80% is, uh, more of that reactivation kind of folks. Yeah. Well, even that 20% is that's impressive. And also the reactivation is critically important. People, when they hear R3, I think a lot of times they just think about new hunters, but it's not just new hunters, right? It's it's getting guys and gals who have just haven't hunted in a while back into it. And so you're mm. definitely filling a, a really unique niche there. Uh, for you personally, being a veteran, being an outdoors person that experienced this, that's a transition away and transition back, uh, there just has to be a lot of personal satisfaction from the work, uh, knowing that you're making a difference in people's lives. You probably already have a ton of stories about that. So just uh, share a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, not, I, I was very fortunate. My last, uh, job in the army, I was an ROTC instructor. I got paid to go teach college kids how to be officers. And while I got to do that, I got paid to get a bachelor's degree. 
Like that helped me get a good job right out of the army, which then paid me to go get a master's degree later because of that job, like, which then led to, led to this and more money. Like people are not as fortunate as I was. And I don't know that I think I just got super lucky, but I mean, there's tons of, of guys out there that go back to their hometowns and you know, they're a roofer, they work construction or they start a landscape company or whatever it is. And I kind of, you look around at guys you were in with, right? Like, you're on Facebook or you just, you call them once a month and you kind of notice like, man, some of these guys are, are, are in a pretty bad spot. Like there's, there's some issues here. Like that guy has six, uh, doing like a, a video chat with a bunch of your buddies. And you notice like that guy has six empty beer cans on his dashboard, like does not care to clean them. Like that's kind of all right. There's a warning sign, like something's going on here. So it kind of doesn't matter. Like, uh, the way I, I kind of describe it is, uh, like what's that everybody's seen Forrest Gump. Yeah. That scene where he gets to the river and he's all by himself and like, yeah, you're safe. You're doing all right Forrest, but you got to go back. And I don't know why exactly like that driving forces, but we run into it across the organization is once you're okay, you got to make sure everybody else is okay. Like that's, that's just the, that's, that's the why we do it. But um, as far as like stories and examples, I, I get those every week or every two weeks, they either forward to me from a local event or they're from a participant at an event that, that we run like uh, the boundary waters a couple of weeks ago, one of the, one of the guys came up to me on day five and he's just like, Hey, like I was switching up who's in what canoe where and the boundary waters, you have to use a canoe that's no motorized. And so you're picking up that canoe, you're carrying it a mile to the next lake, you're fishing, you're keep camping, like as far as you can go, really you'll, you'll get there. But uh, on, uh, I want to say it was either day five or day six. He's, he's talking to me and he's just like, Hey, uh, I just want to let you know, like, this is important. And I was like, yeah, tell me more, man. What am I doing right? What are we doing wrong? Like, let's talk through it. And he's like, about six months ago, I had my pistol and, and I, I was ready to go. I was in a low spot and I'd been drinking and, and I was ready to ready to leave is how he put it. And uh, then I got this email that I got invited to this event. And that's kind of kept me going till now. And now I have, you know, 17 new buddies that are in Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Like they're all local. And I have this new passion and it's it sounds like a crazy revelation to happen in five days, but it does all the time. Like I have, I have eight, uh, I have eight check marks on my whiteboard in front of my desk right now that you guys can't see because your screen's facing the wrong way. But that's eight people that told me like, without this program, I wouldn't be here. Right. And that's not, you know, a huge amount based on 9,800 members, but that's enough. You know, same thing we had, uh, we had a guy in Western Montana. We did a Turkey hunt in 2021 and he's from Indiana not an infantryman, not like a combat soldier, like join the army because he wanted to go to college for free, which is great, right? That's why they offer those programs, but ended up being like a truck driver, I think. And uh, he got blown up like four times. He's got four fused vertebrae, like a whatever titanium or aluminum, like tibia or something, like whatever they put in there, replacement knees or replacement hip. Like he's all worried before the event. He's emailing, he's calling. He's like, hey, it's Montana. I've never been to Montana. I think the elevation is going to hurt. I don't know what's going to happen. Am I going to be able to get up these hills? Like very worked up about it. And I'm, we just kept reassuring him like, Hey, we're going to do whatever you can do. Like if we have to go hunt ag fields in the Valley, we'll go do that. We're, we're going to do whatever you're comfortable with to get you a bird. Right. And day three comes around and it's 20 degrees at night and we didn't have any funding back then. So we're sleeping on the ground in like an REI tent. Like there's no, mm. there's no wall tent with a heater or anything. Like everybody's miserable. And this guy is the first one up in the morning. He's making coffee, right? He's like 
sprinting up and down these mountains like we're all winded and we're out there all the time and i'm like hey man don't don't push yourself too hard like don't you're not trying to don't show off for us man like everybody's good and he's like trevor i can't explain it i just i just feel amazing out here like there's something to it we another uh whitetail event last year in north carolina uh special forces soldier been out for 12 years he spent like 18 of his 20 years in the army and uh in Africa fighting like Taliban funding sources and stuff like not a traditional kind of soldier, like very much like secret, super special operations stuff, missing half of his right leg. And, uh, same thing, like running up and down the Appalachian mountains there. And I'm always worried about him. Like always looking like, Hey, is he doing all right? Are we doing okay? Like at the end, he's just like, I can't believe I didn't start this. Like, I mean, it's been an all right 12 years, but it hasn't been the best. And like, this could have really helped. I can't believe I didn't do this sooner. Like it's insane. The amount of, I don't want to say success, but something like this is success. This is working. Like that makes sense. I answer the question or did I get lost in it again? Well, I, I got lost in it and so did the doctor because we're just listening to these stories. And I think we could just sit here and, and listen to them because I mean, it's just very, very powerful stuff. I mean, it is, um, as you alluded to, it is a blessing to, be able to do something that is truly impacting people's lives and you're doing that. Um, and you know, that kind of leads me to the next thing here. And that is, um, I want to know what the future for the program, what the future of the program is, what that looks like. And then after that, I want you to tell, uh, our listeners where they can find you, because I know I am certain that we have veterans that listen to the show because they've written in before, um, and we've got uh, a lot of veterans that are members of our organization. And I want to make sure that if they're hearing this and they were unaware, I want to make sure they know where they can find you. So future of the program and where can people find you? Yeah, uh, the future of the program is a super scary thought for me. So when I uh, when I came on full time uh, last year, our plan for 2022 was I wanted to do six events for 75 veterans total. That's one. That's our goal. Right. Like I want to earn ten thousand dollars worth of funding and i wanted to use it for these six events and like i said earlier we're going to cross the hundred event mark this year over a thousand veterans taken out like um we're growing incredibly fast so it makes planning a little tough right so as far as the future i'd like to get to i'm going to call it fifteen thousand members in the next five years that's only five thousand more members than we currently have but uh uh and I'd like to get, be in all 50 states. Like right now we're missing Hawaii and Delaware. I'd like a, an Armed Forces Initiative chapter in each of those spots, especially Hawaii, not to discount Delaware, but Hawaii has so many great military bases out there and you have all that fishing, you have access deer, you have hogs, you have goats, you have all kinds of stuff. Like there's some opportunity. Like I think that's areas ripe for the picking. But um, so if I can get to all 50 states, if I can get to 15,000 members in the next five years, and if I can get $150,000 worth of funding, kind of like on a reoccurring basis every year, that's what success kind of looks like for me as, as sort of a midterm goal. Uh, for a long-term goal, haven't thought of it yet. Uh, kind of working in a weird order here, but short-term, um, at the point where we are looking to, we're not, I don't want to say we're hiring yet, but I have done 90% of the paperwork required to hire two people, hopefully starting in January. So job's not posted, don't look for it, it's not ready yet. Uh, but if you were, we also just got signed up for the department of defense skills bridge program, which is where the, the department of defense actually pays you on active duty in your last three months to mm. kind of leave the military and go get a civilian job where they still pay you. And then you get 
just like job experience basically. So we are approved in that. So if you're looking to get out in the next six months, year or whatever, like please look us up on the Department of Defense SkillsBridge website or just send me an email and I will absolutely utilize your free labor services. But um, <laughs> so yeah, short term, hire two people. Midterm, uh, get to 15,000 members, $150,000 worth of funding annually. Long term, to be determined. I have no idea yet. I didn't expect to be where I was 12 months ago. Like I didn't expect to even be 15% of like this, this much. So, um, yeah, if you, if you want to reach out, uh, the best way is to either email armed forces initiative at backcountryhunters.org or email me, which is just my last name, uh, hubs, H U B B S at backcountryhunters.org. And then, uh, go on our website, if you go to the BHA website. Uh, after, if you just Google BHA, like the first result is going to be Boston housing authority. But if you go down <laughs> to like result four or five, you get to backcountry hunters and anglers, right? So click on that one. And then uh, in the top, like bar across the top, there's a little one that says programs. And you've got like our youth program. You've got our hunting for sustainability program. Then at the bottom is the Armed Forces Initiative. And that's us. So that'll take you to our page. You'll see like uh, kind of some video stuff we've done in the field, some blog posts some stuff our members have written about their experiences, uh, a bunch of corporate partners where you can get some cool discounts, uh, a list of who your local leader is. If you don't have one on that list, please, please call me. Let's get it fixed. And then a list of all events we have coming up. So the only thing with the events is you may have like an automatically regional thing turned on. So it says no events in your area and you're in like Wichita, like just unclick that box. It says within 15 miles and then you'll see events for the, the whole U.S. And anybody can go to any event. The only thing we don't cover is travel costs. So like if you want to go to Montana Antelope Camp and you're from Rhode Island, you just got to pay your way to get there. Right. Like you got to pay for your cost and your own hunting license for insurance. I can't pay for your hunting licenses, but uh, yeah, once you get there food, I can, I can provide you with food, place to sleep, camouflage, like bow or rifle as you need it, fishing gear, like all that's covered. You just got to pay your way to get there. So the answer. All I don't have, oops, sorry, Trevor. No, I was just making yes. sure I answered the question. Yes, you did. And I don't have another question for you, but I have a comment. And um, the comment is, I think you're, backing up a little bit, I think you're underselling yourself. Um, actually making that dramatic impact that you talked about with those eight individuals that are on your uh, whiteboard there, I think is is no small feat or no small task at all. And I bet you that every last one of those eight individuals would agree with that. Everyone that they care about and everyone that cares about uh, them would probably uh, agree that it is a very big thing that you have done that you're doing. And I think on top of that is the ripple effect as well, like how those eight individuals will potentially maybe pay it forward and um, impact. And it could be someone like that just, you know, is pulled off the side of the road uh, with a flat tire and, and they're there to get out and change and help that person change their tire. So, I mean, I, I think that what you're doing has a, a greater impact than just um, what you are underselling. And maybe that's just you know, the way you are, and I'm not trying to, you know, embarrass you in any way, shape or form. But uh, to me, I think that's a, a huge eight people, one person, I think would be a, a huge impact. So eight, I think is eight times more than one. And that's tremendous. Yeah, I uh, appreciate you saying that it is a, uh, it's an incredible thing. Like you leave these camps and it's a, and I've never been like a hunting guide before, right? So uh, this is a new experience, a new level of exhaustion. Like you, you leave the wilderness after seven days and you're always running around like, okay, 
Bob needs a Band-Aid because he cut his finger. All right, do we need stitches? No, we can handle it. Okay, great. Uh, I need to help carry this canoe. I need to make sure everybody's having fed. Was, was dinner warm? Was it okay? Like, is the coffee ready? Like, just your mind's going in 10,000 different directions at once because you're responsible for all these uh, all these people. Like, not just their, you know, whatever survival, but make sure they're having a good time. Right? So you leave. Like, I was driving home from Minneapolis, and it's about a 12-hour drive back to my house, uh, and I'm just, like, exhausted. And, uh, and that's the only, like getting these emails, getting these calls, like that's, that's why you can't stop. That's why the program can't, uh, has to cast to keep going. Like you get a guy that like we had a group down in Florida, uh, in the Florida Keys fishing this week. And that just started with a, a Vietnam veteran who called me and he's just like, Hey, uh, I found you guys on the webs on, uh, the Google and he's an older gentleman, but super nice dude. And he's just like, Hey, the, I completely agree with you. The only thing that brought me back from Vietnam was fishing out here in the Florida Keys and that sweet stanky weed, but uh, <laughs> like, just, he's a he's a funny old man. But he's just like, I'd love to take uh, I'd love to take eight folks out for four days. Like I'll pay for everything, right? So it's like, who gets four days of free fishing in the Florida Keys? Like that's an incredible opportunity, you know. Like it's you have to you have to find a way to keep going and make use of that. Like it's I've never worked harder for. Uh, like more hours in the week. Okay, we're putting in like 120 hour weeks. Uh, if no events get canceled, which they shouldn't, uh, by the end of the year, I will have 217 days in a tent, which is uh, just an incredible amount of, uh, of work, but it's so worth it. You get those e emails, you get that phone call. And it's like, well, you can't, you can't stop. You have to keep going, you know, but uh, again, it's, it's not just me. It is all the volunteers. It's everybody at the, the state level, guys like Marty, guys like David in Alaska, like just doing all this work. That's, that's what makes it happen. It's I'm just the dude that uh, gets invited to be on cool podcast and stuff. Well, yeah, this is a cool podcast because this, this is a great show. and We appreciate you providing this information. And I just want to close by saying this. Um, there are a lot of ways to serve your country and it isn't even necessarily that you have to be in the military to serve your country. We all have an opportunity to serve our country. And if you're listening to this and you have a place where uh, Trevor and his team can go and bring people, or if you're an outfitter, um, let us know, let Trevor know that so that he knows that he has places to take people. If you're hearing this, you want to be a participant, please do that as well. So again, they're just, like I said, there are a lot of different ways to serve your country and Trevor, uh, the doctor and I really appreciate you being on. Uh, you've done your service in the military, but you continue to serve uh, fellow veterans in your country in this way. And so we're very appreciative of that. And thank you very much. And uh, hey, best wishes with this program going forward. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. I really appreciate everything uh, you guys do at the National Deer Association as well. So, Mike, all I can say is what a great program. I mean, I, I'll, I'm just going to say it was a great program. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, I do as well. I mean, I came from a family that had three generations of military service. And so that's been always something that's been near and dear to my heart. I mean, my great grandfather uh, was in the military. He actually put money aside for me to be able to go to college because he wanted me to go to college. And I was the first generation that didn't serve in the military. So, you know, I do have a lot of respect for uh, families and family members with military service. And uh, as we did learn that after service, it's actually, uh, for some people, a very tough go of it. You know, don't forget about the people that actually serve and serve very well and give, you know, put their lives in on the line day in and day out and um, making sure that we're following up with them after the fact for what they've done. So um, 
I learned a lot and uh, it's very, very important to me to uh, have that word out there. So, you know, I appreciate this episode. Yeah, well said. And I think, as you pointed out, so many times people think of deployed military when they're deployed. They don't, they, but not after the fact. They don't think about them when they come back. Like, oh, they're deployed, they come back. I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of my brother is that he served in the in the military and the army for a number of years. He was deployed. He he's done his service, but he had he had to face that. He was deployed in Iraq, and then he had to come back. And it's it's not easy. It takes time, and so this program is a great way, I think, to get our veterans back outdoors. And I have a related story that actually popped up after we interviewed uh, Trevor, and that was. A situation where we were trying to recruit people for a local field to fork. And one of the people that reached out to me is a mother and a son because the, the dad who used to hunt, he was deployed and now he's uncomfortable with going out and doing the hunting and, and, and shooting at animals and whatnot, but supportive of them wanting to do it. And so that's a really cool opportunity. Another side of field to fork, for example, where the, the son really wants to hunt and she originally started requesting to get for him. And I said, well, how about both of you? And she's like, you know what? I think he'd love that. Let's do it. And so, you know, this is, I think, just a really good program. We appreciate Trevor being on. All right, let's lighten the mood a little bit here, Mike. It's time for the B-Team Report. Who's going first, Mike, you or I? I think it's going to have to be you because I don't, other than my my microphone going out during this episode, which if you were listening and it's, my sound quality was not as good as it historically has been, was the fact that my microphone decided to uh, retire you know, right as we began the episode. So beyond that, I've been pretty, we had, well, we had practicals this week. So when that happens, it's just all my face in the book and in the computer. So I don't do much. So and the good thing is, is that at least I don't have a B team report about my job. I actually, I do that rather well. So you demonstrated the B team, an example of the D team report, B team report in this episode. <laughs> well, exactly. well done. Well done. Thank we, you. Yeah. We, a matter of fact, we had another B team moment earlier. We had to, we had an outtake. We should record those things and play them back for people. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll leave that one where it is because it was my mistake. But anyway, all right. Well, I have one. Son of a gun. So this is. <laughs> I know. I, I'm so disappointed in myself, but this is nothing new. This is nothing new. I bought. You may have seen, obviously, we have a great relationship with First Light. They're a sponsor, uh, big-time supporters of our work, First Light Meat Eater. And so they come out with this source jacket, which I've talked about. And to me, it's, it is really sort of the perfect piece for most of the hunting that we do. Most of the time we're hunting, you might have mornings that start in the 30s or 40s and end up in the 50s somewhere. would be if I could just pick a typical day, it's kind of that. And this jacket to me is ideal because it's kind of lightweight, but it's got like the the down. It's just it's just a perfect jacket. It's a puffy. They they describe it as like a puffy jacket, uh, but it's very thin and comfortable. So I thought, you know, I want this. I want to add this to my uh, arsenal of first light gear, and so I bought it. And it showed up, and I put it on, and man, it just fit perfect, and it's good because I talked with Ford Van Fossen 
over there before I ordered it and said, Ford, are these kind of true to the sizes? Because I'm, I'm one of those people that I'm mostly a large, but sometimes a medium, and I don't like too bulky of hunting clothes. And so I, I went for the large and uh, put it on, felt great. And it's like, okay, I don't have to exchange this. It's time to cut the tags off. So the tags are hanging off of the zipper on the front. And they're on there with like, you know, instead of just like the old plastic stuff you would get from a shirt you would buy at Walmart or wherever, you know, it's not the plastic tag. The tags are held on with a, with a, uh, like a thin string or, you know, almost like a rope type material. And so I pull out the scissors and proceed to go ahead and cut those off. So I cut them off, throw them in the garbage, and then I go ahead and put the jacket back on and I go to zip it up. Like, where the heck is the tab on the zipper? I, it must have fallen off. Or did it fall on the floor? I didn't hit it, hit the floor. Well, here what I did was, <laughs> because they don't want a tag on the zipper because they're noisy, they have the nice little rope system that that is the tab. And what I did was, not only, <laughs> not only did I cut the tags off, my, I also cut, I also cut the tab, <laughs> the rope tab off. <laughs> My brand new coat that has never made it into the woods yet. <laughs> oh, so there you have I'm it. I'm so glad that I didn't have to go this week. That's a good one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So what I did was I was able to saw, save it. I, I was, I had it, luckily I had enough the way I happened to cut it off. Because it, it comes together with this little rubber piece at the end, too, which is easy to grab a hold of. It's just nicely designed, well thought out. I was at least able to salvage that little piece of cord and retie it. And so it's back on the vest, although minus the rubber thing. So anyway, my bad. If you buy any of this stuff, don't cut off the tab off your zipper and be an idiot. You'll be on the B team like me. So I'm that's telling a, you. <laughs> You and I, I'm sorry, so, <laughs> but you and I are never going to be able to hunt together. Like if you're wearing that jacket, I'm going to laugh the whole time. <laughs> yeah. See that jacket? It's pathetic. It's pathetic. And I'm sure I'm not the only person to ever do something like that. I, I've tell you, I've opened up clothing before, bought things and cut into the box and have cut the clothing, done stupid stuff like that. So anyway, uh, that's the B team report. All right, try to compose ourselves here. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, by the time you're hearing this, we'll have started hunting. And so I actually last evening climbed into a tree with all my gear just to dust off the cobwebs. I got a new saddle and I, even all my camera gear, everything. Everything that I'm going to be taking out for the first hunt I took with me to just get the feel for doing it again because I hadn't in a while. And that's a good practice. I try to do that every year. and you know, it's, it, it works out. I think it saves some hassle because I've had bad experiences opening day, shaking off the cobwebs. So, um, it went well, I, I gotta say, I got up the tree quickly. I got everything set up within 15 minutes. I can be set up and in 15 minutes I can be tore down. And that's even with camera gear. I feel like that's pretty efficient, Mike. And I feel pretty good about things heading into our opening day. Yeah. And that's a good thing to do. As you said, you've, gotten some new equipment this year uh did you hunt with that new saddle last year at all or is this the first year with it it's the first year with it i didn't buy it yeah. until pretty much seasons were over it was sort of an after season sale so we'll see how it does for 
longevity in terms of comfort over over a long hunt but as far as uh, using it it feels comfortable and you know, saddles are for the most part the idea of saddle hunting is pretty much the same you're climbing with a lineman's belt you have a tether you have a bridge but the comfort can be quite different and this one's lighter and i think will be more comfortable than what i was using yeah so it's good to actually figure out those types of things because um as you all know the first year we started saddle hunting that morning hunt I didn't have a ton of time in it. I just hooked up in my backyard, got a feel for my good enough. I'll be ready to go. And what I was doing is I was still fiddling and figuring things out every couple of minutes just to get used to it. And um, I had deer coming. I had them scouted out. They were going to move through about eight o'clock in the morning. And um, I lost track of time because I was too busy fiddling with my gadgets. And I looked up and there was, you know, two deer standing there about 60 yards out staring right at me up in the tree because it's like oh here's some weird squirrel up there having you know having fits or something and <laughs> I completely boogered up that whole hunt so it's good to get that stuff taken care of and getting it out of the way uh, and there's it's never a perfect system but you'll definitely be able to at least minimize a lot of that unnecessary movement that it might cost you like it did me yeah you got to be ready I tell people this I've I've shot a buck opening day and another one like the second day you have to be go into it with the mindset that it could happen and you need to be ready. And so I would just tell people that, that are hunting early season. I know most of us think, well, the best chance is going to be when the rut comes and the deer are really moving. And I'll tell you though, you have to be ready at all times because you never know when it's going to happen. So that was good. It was nice to get out and do that. Yeah. Also on the hunting end, Mike, I've, I have just through what I know on my trail cameras, it looks like four bucks, Three for sure that I would that I feel like I would like to get a shot at, and one I'm not sure. But three of those deer are consistently I'm talking consistently every single day and night <laughs> are showing up on my place in front of my cameras. So they're there. And so I don't know. I feel like my first hunt out there, I might be in that situation where I could I could encounter one of these deer. Well, that's good. And to hear you talk like that, it means that you're in that mindset where you're just not going in, well, it's early, so I should go and and blah, blah, blah. But you're going in there with that, with that mindset. And, um, you know, we probably need to brainstorm afterwards. I think you still might need to get in there a different way. You might need to park someplace different. Cause I think that was, uh, you mentioned that. And um, even if I'm there sometime, I could always do a drive by drop off, you know, like have you on the tailgate and just have you hop off and I just keep going. But I think, uh, you're right that they might hear you coming and know that you're there. So you might have to really think that through. Yeah. That's the other thing that can happen. It's certainly not unusual that you get pictures all the time. And then if you start hunting and you never see the deer, uh, because like you're saying, Mike, they know you're there too. That's, that's certainly part of it. I'm also torn on the one buck we've, you've seen pictures of this deer. He's better than 20 inches wide. He's an eight pointer, but I feel like, man, I would love to see that deer live another year too, because he could be really something special, but it's going to be hard to, I mean, a nice deer with big long beams like that that shows up in front of you. It's going to look really nice in person, I think. Yeah. That's a, that's a dilemma that you're going to have to fight, you know, when you, when you're in the heat of the moment, I can't help you with that one. I mean, he's a good deer and, you know, you put in a lot of good work, but you know, part of it is, does he, well, we always talk about, does he pass the bow grab test? When you see him coming, do you reach up and grab that bow and decide it's go time? So that's going to be a hundred percent you. 
Yeah, it's good to have options. Opening day, you and I have talked a little bit. I'm going to take it pretty easy. I won't be on my place opening day because it, it happens to coincide. Living in a college town, it's our it's the homecoming weekend, and I like to take my son to the parade, and we go to the football game, and the parade, of course, is in the morning. And so some people are listening to this are probably like, wait a minute, this guy's not prioritizing deer hunting on opening day. And I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier, and that is being patient and enjoying our time out there. And yeah, I'm not putting pressure out there either. So whether whether I get a shot on opening day or Monday or whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I'm going to plan to go in the morning on a different farm that's close to the house and just hunt even for maybe an hour, hour and a half and just get out there. And I know you have some plans for opening day too. Right. I'm going to actually go, uh, you and I talked about this. I didn't get a chance to scout out my last uh Rutless spot location as well as I wanted to. So I'm going to head in there on foot, hunt off the ground with the recurve and um, sit there for a little bit. When it's time to bug out, I'm just going to do a quick little 15, 20 minute like, scouting session, tack my tree and then leave and then not come back until November. So uh, my serious hunt's going to be in the evening. That's where I'm going to get after it and see how I do. Well, good. Yeah, and hopefully the weather holds up too. We have the hurricane, uh, the remnants will be working its way up through. It looks like a Saturday evening type arrival, but a lot of times when you live where we do, when the hurricanes come through, uh, you if if you're not right in the path, you don't get a whole lot. You get some wind and, and whatnot, but I like wind, Mike. Uh, I, I like for a, a mature deer. I've seen so many mature deer move when you get those gusts that might be up to 20. Uh, but you're, you know, most of the time five to 10, but then you get a gust of 20. I've had some great nights like that. So you might have yourself a good hunt on Saturday evening. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed, but it's okay. It's the beginning of the season. I'm, I'm ready for the long haul. Yep. That's just it. We're going to have some fun. We're looking forward to it. There are rubs showing up, scrapes showing up. I found some of that stuff the last time I was walking through the woods. So it's looking good. So anything else preseason you want to bring up here, Mike? Just everybody be safe and enjoy yourself. I guess the big thing is that, you know, I, I, other people say it, I'm going to say it too. Don't get so caught up in social media, what everybody else is doing, set your own goals, pursue your own goals and, and have fun and enjoy yourself. And who really cares? Just as long as it's legal, who cares what everyone else thinks or says. Well said, well said. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and uh, work toward the finish line here. This uh, I want to thank you again, obviously, for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. That's what keeps the show going. It keeps us excited to do it. And we also hope your hunting seasons are off to a good start. Some of you have already filled tags. That's awesome. So it's a reminder. Send us your pictures. Also send us Ask NDA Anything questions, B-team stories, and we'll share them here on the show. Uh, reminder also, I often forget to do this, but I want to remind you to please leave us a review and give us some suggestions for future shows. We got a recent review that, that reminded us to, to ask for this, and we have a, a we're very highly rated show, which we appreciate. So we appreciate you continuing to support us that way, and that helps us move up the charts, and other people can see the show. Uh, also, ask NDA anything doesn't even have to be anything for the show. If you're a member or potentially considering being a member, I am very accessible. You can email me directly at nick at deerassociation.com and I will get back to you. I promise you. Thanks again for listening, folks. Good luck out there. National Deer Association, where we are, united for deer. <laughs>